2: This week's show is sponsored by Can't Quit Food. You can quit a lot, but you can't quit food. And who'd want to, right? Whether you're trying to lose weight, looking to feel better, or you just like some healthy, simple menu options, Can't Quit Food's got you covered. At can'tquitfood.com, you'll get recipes and tips from someone who's lost 150 pounds and kept it off for 15 years after giving up fad diets and exercise plans and finding a smarter, more sustainable way of life. And just for Politics Guys listeners, if you go to can'tquitfood.com slash politicsguys, you'll get exclusive access to an awesome peanut butter cup smoothie recipe. I've tried this thing myself, and I can tell you it's seriously good stuff. Again, that address is can'tquitfood.com slash politicsguys.
0: Hello, good afternoon, and thank you uh, for uh, downloading our special edition of the Politics Guys. Uh, This is Jay, and I'm going to be talking to uh, James Toronto uh, of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Mr. Toronto is a uh, member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, probably best known for his uh, Best of the Web uh, daily column, um, which we've recommended numbers of times on the show, and it is probably one of the, the most insightful and most fun uh things you'll read uh any day and 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 uh, james i have to tell you i'm um it's an honor for me to uh, talk to you because I'm, I'm a big fan and i said i'd try to keep my fanboy exuberance uh, to a minimum um but uh, but you know i guess my first first question to you is about best of the web what where did you come up with that and um, uh, what what uh, makes that tick i think what makes it work so well
1: well, the original idea came from Bob Bardley, our legendary uh, late editor. He was—we uh, were setting up a new website, opinionjournal.com, which was what we called a vertical site. Mm-hmm. It was a, a site with its own uh, separate domain name, and it was meant to be a, uh, a sort of a to draw people in who were interested in the editorial page. So it was a free site that offered limited content from the editorial page, and I. Uh, Uh, It's some original content, and it launched in 2000. I was the editor, and when we were trying to think of what the the website should offer uh, in addition to one or two articles from the page each day, uh, Bob said, why don't we do something like a reading list, a list of 10 things on the web that... uh, uh, that uh, P, uh, that the editors of the journal are reading and find interesting and recommend to our readers, and we kicked around the idea, and my colleague Holman Jenkins, who writes the Business world column, came back and said don 't think of it as a list, think of it as a blog mm-hmm. and he gave some examples of uh, of blogs. I think the one that he pointed to was uh, the pointer website uh, the uh, Jim Romanesco's, uh who at the time was running this it was a uh, sort of daily roundup of media news mm-hmm. and So, I, I, we then, we came up with the name Best of the Web Today. We've since dropped the Today. That was uh, a couple of years ago. And we, I, it was originally put together by a fellow named Iris Stoll, who later became managing editor of the New York Sun. He would send me uh, a few hundred words of various items of things that he had found that were interesting. And I started, and I would edit them and put them up sometime in the late morning, early afternoon. As time went on, especially during the 2000 election, uh, you know, my duties as editor of the site were close to a full time job, but I sometimes mm-hmm. found myself uh wanting to contribute uh you know, wanting to having things I wanted to say and this was an unsigned column, so I was able to write my own little editorials as it were, put them into the column, and it eventually took on more of my voice and finally, uh, about a year into it, my boss has said, Well, this has really become your column. You should put your name on it and since then it's had my byline. The main thing that makes it tick is uh, an innovation that I put in place. I guess it was before I started putting my byline on it, but uh, maybe six to eight months after it started, which is uh, the reader participation because we had had always been sending it out by email. Mm -hmm. There was an email address that I uh, was given charge of that was the... Uh, address that was used for bounce messages, and I started noticing as I was looking in this email box that people were sending emails that, you know they were writing back right, right, and sometimes they would send ideas for things to write about and so I started soliciting ideas for things to write about, and eventually that turned into uh, you see the credits list at the bottom of every column, which is a list of names sometimes as many as a hundred of people who have sent me stuff that i've used that day and so the read it 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 I was really innovative, and I don't know anyone who does anything quite like it in terms of uh, encouraging reader participation, encouraging readers to be really a part of the column
0: well, and that's that is i'll tell you that's something i enjoy i'm I'm proud to say I made the the contributors list once uh, but you do feel like you're you're part of something uh, as as you read this and and there are sort of some I, I don't know if I call them inside jokes but but sort of common. Uh, themes that you, you put in this that are sort of, uh, uh, again, and you can describe it to our, our listeners, for those who haven't read, it's you sort of have a beginning uh, analysis part of, of some story, and then sort of these making fun of, of common media tropes, if that's a, the best yeah, way to put we, it.
1: Yeah, we support the tropes. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the format of the column has changed a bit uh, over the years. It was originally uh, just a series of different items, and I eventually it got to the point where i most days now it's just one long item of analysis at the beginning and then somewhere in the mid uh, 2000s i would say i started doing these uh, these headline gags uh, which would be, uh, you know, there's everything from uh, I'll put two headlines together under question and answer, or problem and solution, uh, or uh, some things are, uh, you know, just making fun of common words that are used in headlines. Uh, look out below whenever there's a headline about somebody or something being dropped. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always in the last place you look every time there's something about somebody uh if, something being lost or something being found, The uh, bottom stories of the day, that was an early one. <laughs> uh, the, the, that, that's uh, stories of uh, that are either completely unsurprising, you know, Dog Bites Man, or completely insignificant, or both. Sure. The first one of those I came up with, the inspiration for that idea, was somehow I stumbled upon – a an article in a newspaper in North Dakota, and I forget mm-hmm. which paper it was, but you know there are only so many newspapers in North Dakota, and it was a story about a two-year-old girl who had had appendicitis, and had had her appendix taken out, uh, which you know is a big event in the in the uh, story of that <laughs> right. family and that little girl, but it's not much of a news story, and what made it even less of a news story was. They said it was a, you know, the operation went completely well. The girl was never in any danger, and it said uh, the doctors said that although this operation on a girl of the, on a child of this age was unusual, it was not rare. So there was nothing about this that made it newsworthy, except that it happened in a place in North Dakota where I guess not much happens. Nothing else was just happened that, that day. That, <laughs> yeah. So I, I just I just found that kind of funny in a way. So you know now I mean now I'll use the bottom story of the day for any number of different kinds of stories. For example, you know scientists warn of danger from global warming. Yeah. Well, what else is new? Right. So uh, so you know I've got all of these fun uh, headline gags, and then I usually have a funny short item of some sort that I conclude the column with, uh, to conclude, to end it on a light note.
0: Okay. Uh, and you know, I guess turn into, um, the media and and how they cover politics in general because this is a theme that we talk about on the show and a, a perennial complaint among republicans is they don't get a fair shake from the mainstream media and i wanted to get your thoughts just uh, on that as someone who is uh, I, I i don't want to say you're in the mainstream media because you're you are perceived as more conservative uh and the, the journal's uh, editorial page is, is perceived as i would say probably center right um but what are your thoughts on it? Is there media bias, and is it, is it ideological, or is it biased towards sensationalism, or is there something else going on?
1: Well, all of the above, uh, but one would expect the news to be biased towards some degree of sensationalism because, uh, you know, things otherwise, that are unusual are the things. <laughs> right, otherwise it's dog bites man. Uh, you know, people are more interested in Shark Bites Man than in Dog Bites Man. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't necessarily criticize the media for uh, sensationalism, and obviously there's a range there. I mean, the National Enquirer is going to be more sensationalistic than, uh, than the New York Times. I think there's a place for that. But the ideological bias is certainly there. It has been there for many years. Uh, it, we started seeing uh, alternative media come out, I uh, really I think in the 80s with Talk Radio was the first time that you had uh, really alternative mass media as opposed to you know the odd conservative voices like the Journal Editorial Page or a few other editorial pages here and there. Mm-hmm. Talk Radio was really a mass media that uh, that That was much more conservative than liberal, uh, we owe uh, that to uh, President Reagan and his FCC for repealing the fairness doctrine uh, and then we saw Fox News rise in the 90s and then we saw the rise of blogs and other sites and the sort of general uh, uh, fracturing of the media marketplace uh, over the past uh, say fifteen to twenty years. Mm-hmm. And so, But what's interesting about this is the mainstream media have hung on. They're not as powerful as they used to be, but I would say that they've moved uh, farther to the left because they've lost audience share to these alternatives, and uh, therefore they come under pressure from the remaining audience to reflect their views more. So I think the New York Times is – more biased today than it was 20 or 30 years ago, although it was biased then as well.
0: Right. So there's sort of so there's sort of two separate news markets now, if you will, and it's it's you, the the mainstream media is catering more towards the the left than uh, to to accommodate that.
1: Right. And the problem is people still. Uh, You know, people who are apolitical get a lot more of their news from what we call the mainstream media. I mean, not – you know, the New York Times has its pieces uh, syndicated in newspapers across the country. Uh, The Associated Press is maybe not as uh, biased as the New York Times, but it's – it generally has a, a liberal slant, I would say, uh, you know the network uh, TV newscast audiences have been declining for years, but they 're still higher than I believe any cable news show. Yeah. Uh, I think the highest rated cable news show is probably o 'Reilly, and uh, he still gets several minutes uh, several million fewer viewers, I believe than any of the network uh, evening newscasts yeah. so I, the, if anything, the liberal bias in the media has become worse, and then we have of course this year. The Donald Trump phenomenon, where you have journalists saying – I saw that uh, this Jay Rosen, who is a uh, journalism professor at NYU, calls it a civic emergency uh, stopping Trump. And the New York Times has endorsed this position. They published a column by Jim Rutenberg, their media columnist, on the front page, which I take to mean it's a statement of policy, saying essentially we have to give up trying to be objective – for the duration of this election, because defeating Donald Trump is so important. Well, I think that that further erodes uh, the credibility of uh, the news media and the New York Times in particular, uh, regardless of the outcome of the election. And uh, I think it's a uh, it's a great mistake. Yeah.
0: You know, another, uh, I guess, fairly recent development in journalism is the fact-check genre, and that's something you've been particularly uh, critical of in a lot of your columns. Uh, and I wonder if you you could comment about what's What's bad about the fact the fact check genre as it exists now, and is there a way to to make it better?
1: Yeah, well, for people who aren't familiar with this genre, this is uh, what 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 this is. Uh, the format here is uh, the journalist will present an assertion, usually made by a politician, uh, and then. I, grade it and determine how factual it is. And some of them have scales that they use. For example, Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post uh, will give it Pinocchios. So a statement that he says is completely true gets a, what he calls a Geppetto mark, And then uh, statements that are false get between one and four Pinocchios, depending on how false they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, PolitiFact will rate, has a rating of true, and a rating of half true, and a rating of false, and then a rating of pants on fire, which I guess is the equivalent of four Pinocchio's. Now the problem with this is, I really what these are are opinion pieces because what the author is doing is he's looking at a statement and then he's passing judgment on it and he's saying this is factual or it isn't. Often these statements are not factual statements at all. They're not claims about fact. They are uh, perhaps hyperbolic uh, statements or I. I uh, predictions uh PolitiFact, for example, in 2008 rated president uh, rated then Senator Obama's promise that under my plan, you can uh, uh you'll be keep able to doctor. keep your doctor as true because that was what his plan said. So it was true because he said it was true. Well, that's a tautology. Then, uh, as time went on, they rated it uh, partly true or mostly true. And then finally in 2013, when it turned out to have been a big lie, they rated it lie of the year. Uh, so basically what's happening is they're giving a politician they like the benefit of the doubt and then modifying their views uh, and finally uh, yielding to uh, uh, the facts when the facts are out. But it never should have been treated as a factual claim in the first place. A right. Uh, right. similar example uh, – Glenn Kessler, I believe it was, the Washington Post, gave Mrs. Clinton two Pinocchios for her statements about her uh, email scandal. And then when uh, Jim Comey... Uh, Discussed the FBI's findings. This was even before the recent uh, written material that the FBI turned over that makes things look even worse for her. Mm-hmm. Then Kessler said, "Oh well, actually, it's four Pinocchios." But how did he know to give her two Pinocchios? He was just making. He was just rendering an opinion, giving her the benefit of the doubt. And this, you know, what actually what this what these fact checks are a lot like is a judicial opinion. Uh, but we call judicial opinions opinions, right? And uh, they are, uh, you know, they're fallible. And so the fact-check genre is an effort on the part of journalists to reclaim some of the authority that they feel they've lost, but they're reclaiming it by mislabeling opinion pieces as matters of pure fact, and I think that it only uh, it only uh, diminishes their, uh, their uh, uh, credibility further, which is not to say that some good work isn't done under the rubric of fact-checking. Now and then I will cite a fact-check that I find persuasive, but – Again, it's no different from what I do. I do an opinion column. Uh, you're reading it. You're getting my biases. You're getting my opinions. Uh, I don't claim it's anything else. Uh, except, of course, I do. I adhere to the facts, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, you know, I'm not knowingly going to say something that uh, that I. That that is false, uh, but uh, you know, opinion journalism should be clearly labeled as such. And what these guys are doing is they're labeling opinion journalism as sort of a supercharged kind of factual journalism, right. Uh, right. when in fact it's just the opposite. Right,
0: and, and it's even even the more insidious, I think, as as you, you point out, because it's sort of saying this is it's not just this is reporting. This is more than reporting. This is fact check. Like the other reporting is something different. Right. Um, you know. It, turns to sort of policy stuff with the trump candidacy the the journal opinion um uh, page uh, the journal editorial page is typically taking the position of of tradi- what i would call traditional conservatism and i think even in your mission statement it cites uh the principles of, of adam smith's uh, wealth of nations that that's one of the sort of the governing lights i guess to the uh, the journal's editorial policy um but this this is sort of a rough year for adam smith and I just kind of want to get your, your thoughts on uh, where do uh, pro-trade conservatives go, do you think, uh, in, the, in our current environment?
1: Well, uh, I guess it depends how strongly you feel about it. I mean, if you really feel strongly about it, uh, I vote for Gary Johnson. Yeah. I, I actually have a friend, a guy who started as a reader, and I met him uh, almost 15 years ago, and we've become uh, friends since. Uh, and he tells me he's voting for Gary Johnson uh, because I, he is uh, something close to a single-issue voter on trade, uh, and he finds uh, – Trump more accept more unacceptable than Mrs. Clinton, but he finds both of them somewhat unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's voting for Johnson. I don't think there are a lot of single issue trade voters out there, uh, but I guess that's where they would go. Uh, in terms of uh, the journal's position, uh, we are, uh, you know, Trump is departs from our views on his two major areas of heterodoxy uh, from our institutional views, namely immigration and trade. And so uh, we have never, as a page, been enthusiastic about Trump. Uh, we don't endorse candidates. Right. Uh, we endorsed Herbert Hoover in 1928 and never made that mistake again. <laughs> and I hasten to add that was before my time. But uh, we did have an editorial saying uh, Trump was not our first choice or even our 16th. Right. <laughs> uh, and I think that that probably is true of most of the people on the page. On the other hand, there's a range of views uh, among i uh, uh, my fellow editorial board members and myself, uh, as to uh, as to Trump, I think at one ex- one end is Brett Stevens, who is a uh, very strong never Trumper. He writes the Global View column, which appears in, on uh, Tuesday's paper, mm-hmm. uh, in Tuesday's paper. And I would put myself uh, along with my colleague James Freeman at the other end of that. We are the least anti-Trump uh, people on the uh, on the editorial page. Right. So you're,
0: I would uh, you're not a never Trumper, but but not a. I guess, how how would you describe that? A, ho- hopefully, not a dry, I guess there's no word for it now. Uh, well, I nominee, was. I, so,
1: but. I, I was never Trump during the prime. I was anti Trump, rather, during the primaries. And now I see him as uh, considerably preferable to Mrs. Clinton. Okay. I, I also am, am somewhat ambivalent about Trump. There are things about him that I find. I uh, th- that I find uncongenial there are some things about him that really worry me and there are other things about him that I find delightful most notably his uh, contempt for political correctness
0: <laughs> agreed and, and turning to that I you know one of the uh, pieces that you wrote in one of your um, best of the web analyses and it was really sort of a personal story about uh, your days as a student journalist uh, and your professor and and your adventures in the age of political correctness. And I wonder if you could just give our listeners sort of a background on that, um, uh, sort of what happened and, and how that informs what you do now.
1: Yeah, in 1987, almost 30 years ago, I was suspended from the Daily Sundial, the student newspaper at Cal State Northridge, which is the third tier Western University that I attended and from which, by the way, I never graduated, <laughs> uh, because I wrote an a opinion piece I was opinion editor on alternate days, uh, and I wrote an opinion piece and published it uh, arguing for freedom of speech. Uh, there had been a cartoon that made fun of uh, racial preferences, affirmative action, at, that was published at UCLA, which set off a big kerfuffle and got the editor uh, and uh, art directors suspended there by the student government. And our paper at at uh, Northridge was overseen by the journalism department. And, you know, I spent uh, hours in class listening to these professors uh, inculcate us with pieties about the uh, sanctity of the First Amendment and all that. Mm-hmm. And I actually believed that stuff. And, but when I ran this uh, piece defending this cartoon and the right to print it and published the cartoon along with it to illustrate what I was talking about, uh, I got suspended by Cynthia Rawich, the faculty advisor of uh, the student newspaper. And I, I, you know, I went through uh, administrative grievances and whatnot, and mm-hmm. they, uh, they went nowhere. So finally I had to sue her. Uh, the ACLU represented me, and uh, the whole process took a little over two years, but finally the case was about to go to trial and they realized they were going to lose and uh, so they agreed to rescind my suspension and uh, let me rewrite the uh, policies of the student newspaper and it was a uh, it was frustrating as hell at the time but it was a great experience and you know, uh, 27 years later, I got a column out of it, so I can't complain. Yeah,
0: and, and the, just, just to give our reader or our listeners an idea, the, the offensive cartoon involved a, a rooster applying for admissions or something. It was, it was sort of a ridiculous
1: thing to it take was offense a, to. Uh, it, it was a uh, – Regular running strip in the UCLA school paper, which is called The Daily Bruin, and it was called UC Rooster. It wasn't normally a political cartoon. It was very crudely drawn uh, by a young man named Bruce Feinbaum. I have no idea what's uh, what's happened to him. Uh, but uh, it, it, this particular installment depicted the rooster standing on campus, another student, a human being, uh, uh, says to him, "Pardon me, but aren't you a rooster?" The rooster says, "Yes." The guy says, "Well, that's cool, but how did you get into UCLA?" And the rooster says, "Affirmative action." I, uh, you know, with right. what's been going on on <laughs> campus the past couple of years, it really wasn't all that different then, except perhaps that it was a bit less all-consuming. Yeah. And so, you know, there was the same kind of, I, uh, uh, you know, hysterical overreaction. Uh, by uh, organized minority students or third world students, as they called themselves at UCLA at the time, and the administration, or the, actually this was the student government, uh, knuckled under, and then they rescinded the suspension when it turned out they hadn't followed their own procedures. And the editor at UCLA threatened to sue, and so they said so, uh, he also published a groveling apology. So basically, both sides blinked there, but not in my case. I actually had to uh, go through a two-year legal process to uh, to vindicate uh, myself.
0: Do, do you see any uh, like ray of light coming from, for example, University of Chicago's recent uh, email to? Incoming students about uh, safe spaces and free space or and free, free speech. Uh, do you think that, is the tide turning or is this this? I, I guess window dressing.
1: Well, I think that uh, the Chicago thing is genuine. There have been a few other uh, schools that have made encouraging noises. Uh, Purdue University, where Mitch Daniels is the president, uh, Oklahoma Wesleyan University, which has joined a lawsuit against this. Uh, Crazy Title IX business, which uh, I won't go into because that, that that would be a whole other half-hour conversation. Sure. Uh, but I met the president at a conference recently. Apparently, the University of Colorado is doing some good things. Uh, so, you know, there are, some, uh, there are some rays of hope, but uh, I think right now the universities are so dominated by the thuggish left and uh, supported by government subsidies that it's going to be hard to really make a change. Uh, although, who knows, maybe uh, the uh, cultural effect of a Trump presidency would trickle down.
0: I, I guess that would be, yeah, that's something people could hope for. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I know it, we're, we're on the eve of a holiday weekend and uh, I don't want to keep you, but is there anything else that you've been working on that you'd like to, to plug or uh, authors uh, that you recommend that uh, our listeners should read or, or places we should uh, look for information?
1: Well, if you want to uh, get a different take on the election, uh, Scott Adams, the uh, cartoonist who draws Dilbert, we're talking about cartoons again yes. here, <clears throat> and uh, by the way, the uh, uh, the cartoon that I got in trouble for reprinting was even more crudely drawn than Dilbert, but Scott Adams, I, I interviewed him for the journal uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that's worth reading. Uh, the title is uh, Dilbert Explains Donald Trump. You should be able to find it uh, through Google. Uh, but Adams is uh, something of a self-taught expert in persuasion theory and uh, technique, and for over a year now he has been uh, analyzing the Trump phenomenon and has been writer than just about anyone. And he's got a blog uh, blog.gilbert.com, uh which I've been following and which is what you know, which is what prompted me to uh, to do the interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he is. Present company accepted, of course, uh, perhaps the most interesting commentator on this current election, and I highly recommend his work.
0: Okay. Is there anything in particular that that you think makes him different? uh, Why does he get it, I guess, as an outsider when so many Insiders missed it, or is it because he's an outsider that he he, he gets it? I guess.
1: Well, it's because he's an outsider, so he's not looking at it through the filter of conventional political analysis. But he is an expert on persuasion techniques, meaning hypnosis, everything from hypnosis to social psychology and behavioral economics to uh, marketing, and se- he's a, he's he studied this stuff for thirty, forty years, and uh, so he was on t- he was onto. Uh, The techniques Trump was using, uh, quite quite aside from any considerations of ideology or demography or the sort of things that conventional political analysts usually think about. Right,
0: just technique. So, you know, I, I think that's, that's probably uh, all, all the time we've got. But, again, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to uh, be on our show. And uh, we hope you tune in as a, as a regular listener in the future. And um, uh, we'd be happy to link to anything else that uh, you find interesting on our webpage or uh, our Facebook page. And um, uh, with that, I wish you a happy Labor Day weekend.
1: All right. Thanks a lot. I appreciate the attention.
2: Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future guests, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news throughout the week, and where you can join in, too, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would really appreciate it if you could take just a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. And if you like what we're doing and want us to be able to keep on doing it, a donation of even a dollar or two would really help. You'll find donation links on our site, politicsguys.com.